Welcome back, dear listener, to a new episode of Storytime with Mark, the podcast dedicated to the pursuit of reading out loud and hopefully finding several, many, or legions of people out there in the world who like to be read to, hopefully including you. Well, this has never happened before, dear listener. Uh, Three days in a row recording fresh episodes of this podcast. As you know by now, I'm reading Robert Louis Stevenson's Treasure Island, a wonderful book of my childhood. And uh, the reason for this uh, rapid pace of releasing uh, content, as, as, as they say, is because I was inspired by a young boy in our family who lives in Idaho who I thought would, lo- would want to hear this story. And I certainly hope he's listening and enjoying the story. Now, we uh, almost concluded yesterday the section of the book called The Old Buccaneer. We will certainly finish that section today uh, and launch into part two, The Sea Cook, uh, in the sec- is the second section of the book. Um, so without further ado, I will launch into it, starting with the chapter entitled The Captain's Papers. We rode hard all the way till we drew up before Dr. Livesey's door. The house was all dark to the front. Mr. Dance told me to jump down and knock, and Dogger gave me a stirrup to descend by. The door was opened almost at once by the maid. Is Dr. Livesey in, I asked. No, she said. He had come home in the afternoon, but had gone up to the hall to dine and pass the evening with the squire. So there we go, boys, said Mr. Dance. This time, as the distance was short, I did not mount, but ran with Dogger's stirrup leather to the lodge gates and up the long, leafless, moonlit avenue to where the white line of the hall buildings looked on either hand on great old gardens. But Mr. Dance dismounted, here Mr. Dance dismounted, and, taking me along with him, was admitted at a word into the house. The servant led us down a matted passage and showed us at the end into a great library, all lined with bookcases and busts, upon the top of them, where the squire and Dr. Livesey sat, pipe in hand, on either side of a bright fire. I had never seen the squire so near at hand. He was a tall man, over six feet high, and broad in proportion, and he had a bluff, rough-and-ready face, all roughened and reddened and lined by his long travels. His eyebrows were very black and moved readily, and this gave him a look of some temper, not bad, you would say, but quick and high. "'Come in, Mr. Dance,' says he, very stately and condescending. "'Good evening, Dance,' said the do- says the doctor with a nod. "'And good evening to you, friend Jim. "'What good wind brings you here?' "'The supervisor stood up straight and stiff "'and told his story like a lesson. "'And you should have seen how the two gentlemen "'leaned forward and looked at each other "'and forgot to smoke in their surprise and interest. "'When they heard how my mother went back to the inn, "'Dr. Livesley fairly slapped his thigh, "'and the squire cried, "'Bravo!' and broke his long pipe against the grate. Long before it was done, Mr. Trelawney, that you will remember was the squire's name, had got up from his seat and was striding about the room, and the doctor, as if to hear the better, had taken off his powdered wig and sat there looking very strange indeed with his own close-cropped black pall. As Mr. Dance finished the story, at last Mr. Dance finished the story. Mr. Dance, said the squire, you are a very noble fellow. And as for riding down that black, atrocious miscreant, I regard it as an act of virtue, sir, like stamping on a cockroach. 
This lad Hawkins is a trump, I perceive. Hawkins, will you ring that bell? Mr. Dance must have some ale. And so, Jim, said the doctor, you have the thing that they were after, have you? Here it is, sir, said I, and gave him the oilskin packet. The doctor looked it all over, as if his fingers were itching to open it, but instead of doing that, he put it quietly in the pocket of his coat. Squire, said he, when Dance has had his ale, he must, of course, be off on his majesty's service, but I mean to keep Jim Hawkins here to sleep at my house, and with your permission I propose we should have up the cold pie and let him sup. As you will, Livesey, said the squire. Hawkins has earned better than cold pie. So a big pigeon pie was brought in and put on a side table, and I made a hearty supper, for I was as hungry as a hawk, while Mr. Dance was further complimented and at last dismissed. And now, squire, said the doctor, and now, Livesey, said the squire in the same breath. One at a time, one at a time, laughed Dr. Livesey. You have heard of this flint, I suppose? Heard of him, cried the squire. Heard of him, you say? He was the bloodthirstiest buccaneer that sailed. Blackbeard was a child to Flint. The Spaniards were so prodigiously afraid of him that, I tell you, sir, I was sometimes proud he was an Englishman. I've seen his topsails with these eyes off Trinidad and the cowardly son of a punt rum puncheon that I sailed with put back, put back, sir, into port of Spain. Well, I've heard of him myself in England said the doctor, but the point is, had he money? Money, cried the squire. Have you heard the story? What were these villains after but money? What do they care for but money? But for what for what would they risk their rascal carcasses but money? That we shall soon know, replied the doctor, but you are so confoundedly hot-headed and exclamatory that I cannot get a word in. What I want to know is this, supposing that I have here in my pocket some clue to where Flint buried his treasure. Will that treasure amount to much? Amount, sir, cried the squire. It will amount to this. If we have the clue you talk about, I fit a ship in Bristol Dock and take you and Hawkins here along, and I'll have that treasure if I search a year. Very well, said the doctor. Now then, if Jim is agreeable, we'll open the packet. And he laid it before him on the table. The bundle was sewn together, and the doctor had to get out his instrument case and cut the stitches with his medical scissors. It contained two things, a book and a sealed paper. First of all, we'll try the book, observed the doctor. The squire and I were both peering over his shoulder as he opened it, for Dr. Livesey had kindly motioned me to come round from the side table where I had been eating to enjoy the sport of the search. On the first page, there were only some scraps of writing such as a man with a pen in his hand might make for idleness or practice. One was the same of the tattoo mark, Billy Bones, his fancy. Then there was Mr. W. Bones, mate. No more rum. Uh, off Palm Key, he got it. And some other snatches, mostly single words and unintelligible. I could not help wondering who it was that had got it and what it was that he got. A knife in his back is like as not. Not much instruction there, said Dr. Livesey as he passed on. The next ten or twelve pages were filled with a curious series of entries. There was a date at one end of the line and at the other a sum of money, and in common account books, as, as in common account books, but instead of explanatory writing, only a varying number of crosses between the two. 
On the 12th of June, 1745, for instance, a sum of 70 pounds had plainly become due to someone, and there was nothing but six crosses to explain the cause. In a few cases, to be sure, the name of a place would be added as off Caracas, or a mere entry of latitude and longitude as 62 minutes, 17 seconds, and 20 bits. The second, the record lasted over nearly 20 years, the amount of the separate entries growing larger as time went on, and at the end, a grand total had been made out after five or six wrong additions, and these words appended, Bones, his pile. I can't make head or tail of this, said Dr. Livesey. The thing is as clear as noonday, cried the squire. This is the black-hearted hound's account book. These crosses stand for the names of ships or towns that they sank or plundered. The sums are the scoundrel's share, and where he feared an ambiguity, you see he added something clearer, off Caracas. Now, you see, here was some unhappy vessel boarded off that coast. God help the poor souls that manned her coral long ago. Right, said the doctor. See what it is to be a traveler. Right. And the amounts increase, you see, as he rose in rank. There was little else in the volume, but a few a few bearings of places noted in the blank leaves towards the end, and a table for reducing French, English, and Spanish monies to a common value. Thrifty man, cried the doctor. He wasn't the one to be cheated. And now, said the squire, for the other. The paper had been sealed in several places with a thimble by way of seal, the very thimble perhaps that I had found in the captain's pocket. The doctor opened the seals with great care, and there fell out of the map, there fell out the map of an island with latitude and longitude, soundings, names of hills and bays and inlets, and every particular that would be needed to bring a ship to a safe anchorage upon its shores. It was about nine miles long and five across, shaped, you might say, like a fat dragon standing up, and had two fine landlocked harbors, and a hill in the center part marked the Spyglass. There were several editions of a later date, but above all, three crosses of red ink, two on the north part of the island, one in the southwest, and besides this last, in the same red ink and in a small, neat hand, very different from the captain's tottery characters, these words, bulk of treasure here. Over on the back of this, on the same, the same hand had written this further information. Tall tree, spyglass shoulder, bearing a point to the north of north-northeast, skeleton island east-southeast and by east, ten feet. The bar silver is in the north cache. You can find it by the trend of the east hummock, ten fathoms south on the black crag with the face on it. The arms are easy found in the sand hill, north point of north inlet cape, bearing east and a quarter north. J.F. That was all, but brief as it was, and to me incomprehensible, it filled the squire and Dr. Livesey with delight. Livesey, said the squire, you will give up this wretched practice at once. Tomorrow I start for Bristol. In three weeks' time, three weeks, two weeks, ten days, we'll have the best ship, sir, and the choicest crew in England. Hawkins shall come as cabin boy. You'll make a fa famous cabin boy, Hawkins. You, Livesey, are ship's doctor. I am admiral. We'll take Redruth, Joyce, and Hunter. We'll have favorable winds, a quick passage, and not the least difficulty in finding the spot, and money to eat, to roll in, to play duck and drake with ever after. Trelawney, said the doctor, I'll go with you, and I'll go bail for it, so will Jim. 
and be a credit to the undertaking. There's only one man I'm afraid of. And who's that? cried the squire. Name the dog, sir. You, replied the doctor, for you cannot hold your tongue. We are not the only men who know of this paper. These fellows who attacked the inn tonight, bold, desperate blades for sure. And the rest who stayed aboard that lugger and more, I dare say, not far off are, one and all, through thick and thin, bound that they'll get that money. We must none of us go alone till we get to sea. Jim and I shall stick together in the meanwhile. You'll take Joyce and Hunter when you ride to Bristol, and from first to last, not one of us must breathe a word of what we've found. Livesy, returned the squire. You are always in the right of it. I'll be as silent as the grave. Okay, that concludes the first section of the book. We launch into the second section, which, as you'll remember, is called The Sea Cook. And the first chapter is, I Go to Bristol. It was longer than the squire imagined, ere we were ready for the sea. And none of our first plans, not even Dr. Livesey's, of keeping me beside him, could be carried out as we intended. The doctor had to go to London for a physician to take charge of his, charge of his practice. The squire was hard at work at Bristol, and I lived on at the hall under the charge of old Redruth, the gamekeeper, almost a prisoner, but full of sea dreams and the most charming anticipations of strange islands and adventures. I brooded by the hour together over the map, all the details of which I well remembered. Sitting by the fire in the housekeeper's room, I approached that island in my fancy from every possible direction. I explored every acre of its surface. I climbed a thousand times to the that tall hill they called the spyglass, and from the top enjoyed the most wonderful and changing prospects. Sometimes the isle was thick with savages with whom we fought, sometimes full of dangerous animals that hunted us, but in all my fancies, nothing occurred to me so strange and tragic as our actual adventures. So the weeks passed on till one fine day there came a letter addressed to Dr. Livesey with this addition, to be opened in the case of his absence by Tom Redruth or young Hawkins. Obeying this order we found, or rather I found, for the gamekeeper was a poor hand at reading anything but print, the following important news. Old Anchor Inn, Bristol, March 1st, 17 blank. Dear Livesey, as I do not know whether you are in the hall or still in London, I send this in double to both places. The ship is bought and fitted. She lies at anchor, ready for sea. You never imagined a sweeter schooner. A child might sail her. 200 tons, name Hispaniola. I got her through my old friend, Blandly, who has proved himself throughout the most surprising trump. The admirable fellow literally slaved in my interest, and so I may say did everyone in Bristol as soon as they got wind of the port we sailed for. Treasure, I mean. Redruth, said I, interrupting the letter. Dr. Livesey will not like that. The squire has been talking after all. Well, who's better? Who's a better right, growled the gamekeeper. A pretty rum go if squire ain't to talk for Dr. Livesey, I should think. At that I gave up all attempt at commentary and read straight on. Blandly himself found the Hispaniola, and by the most admirable management got her for the merest trifle. There is a class of men in Bristol monstrously prejudiced against Blandly. They go the length of declaring that his, this honest creature would do anything for money, that the Hispaniola belonged to him, and that he sold it me absurdly high, the most transparent, most transparent calumnies. None of them dare, however, to deny the merits of the ship." 
So far, there was not a hitch. The work people, to be sure, riggers and whatnot, were most annoyingly slow, but time cured that. It was the crew that troubled me. I wished a round score of men in case of natives, buccaneers, or the odious French, and I had the worry of the deuce itself to find as much as half a dozen, till the most remarkable stroke of fortune brought me the very man that I required. I was standing on the dock when, by the merest accident, I fell in talk with him. I found he was an old sailor, kept a public house, knew all the seafaring men in Bristol, had lost his health ashore, and wanted a good berth as cook to get to sea again. He had hobbled down there that morning, he said, to get a smell of the salt. I was monstrously touched, so would you have been, and out of pure pity I engaged him on the spot to be the ship's cook. Long John Silver, he is called, and has lost a leg, but that I regarded as a recommendation since he lost it in his country's service under the immortal hawk. He has no pension lives. He imagined the abominable age we live in. Well, sir, I thought I had only found a cook, but it, it was a crew I had discovered. Between Silver and myself, we got together in a few days a company of the toughest old salts imaginable. Not pretty to look at, but fellows, by their faces, of the most indomitable spirit. I declare we could fight a frigate. Long John even got rid of two of the six or seven I had already engaged. He showed me in a moment that they were just the sort of freshwater swabs we had to fear in an adventure of importance. I am in the most magnificent health and spirits, eating like a bull, sleeping like a tree, yet I shall not enjoy a moment until I hear my old tarpaulins tramping round the capstan. Seaward ho, hang the treasure. It's the glory of the sea that has turned my head. So now, Livesy, come post. Do not lose an hour if you respect me. Let young Hawkins go at once to see his mother with Redruth for a guard, and then both come full speed to Bristol. John Trelawney. Postscript. I did not tell you that Blandley, who, by the way, is to send a consort after us if we don't turn up by the end of August, August had found an admirable fellow for sailing master, a stiff man, which I regret, but in all other respects a treasure. Long John Silver unearthed a very competent man for, for a mate, a man called Arrow. I have a bosun who pipes, Livesy, so things shall go man-o'-war fashion on board the good ship Hispaniola. I forgot to tell you that Silver is a man of substance. I know of my own knowledge that he has a banker's account which has never been overdrawn. He leaves his wife to manage the inn, and as she is a woman of color, a pair of old bachelors like you and I may be excused for guessing that it is the wife quite as much as the health that sends him back to roving. Post postscript, Hawkins may stay one night with his mother. You can fancy, fancy the excitement into which that letter put me. I was half beside myself with glee, and ever, I, and if ever I despised a man, it was old Tom Redruth, who could do nothing but grumble and lament. Any of the under-gamekeepers would gladly have changed places with him, but such was not the squire's pleasure, and the squire's pleasure was like law among them all. Nobody but old Redruth would have dared so much as even to grumble. The next morning, he and I set out, foot for the, set out on foot for the Admiral Benbow, and there I found my mother in good health and spirits. The captain, who had so long been a cause of so much discomfort, was gone, where the wicked ceased cease from troubling. The squire had had everything repaired, and the public rooms and the sign repainted, and had added some furniture, above all a beautiful armchair for mother in the bar. 
He had found her a boy as an apprentice also, so that she should not want help while I was gone. It was on seeing that boy that I understood, for the first time, my situation. I had thought, up to that moment, of the adventures before me, not at all of the home that I was leaving. And now, at sight of this clumsy stranger who was to stay here in my place beside my mother, I had my first attack of tears. I am afraid I led that boy a dog's life, for as he was new to the work, I had a hundred opportunities of setting him right and putting him down, and I was not slow to profit by them. The night passed, and the next day, after dinner, Redruth and I were afoot again and on the road. I said goodbye to mother and the cove where I had lived since I was born, and the dear old Admiral Benbow, since he was repainted no longer quite so dear. One of my last thoughts was of the captain, who had so often strode along the beach with his cocked hat, his saber-cut cheek, and his old brass telescope. Next moment we had turned the corner and my home was out of sight. The mail picked us up about the dusk at the Royal George on the heath. I was wedged in between Redruth and a stout old gentleman, and in spite of the swift motion and the cold night air, I must have dozed a great deal from the very first, and then slept like a log up hill and down dale through stage after stage, for when I was awakened at last it was by a punch in the ribs, and I opened my eyes and found that we were standing still before a large building in a city street that the, and that the day had already broken a long time. Where are we? I asked. Bristol, said Tom. Get down. Mr. Trelawney had taken up his residence at inn, at an inn far down the docks to, to superintend the work upon the schooner. Thither we had now to walk, and our way, to my great delight, lay along the quays and beside the great multitude of ships of all sizes and rigs and nations. In one sailors were singing at their work, in another there were men aloft, high over my head, hanging to threads that seemed no thicker than a spider's. Though I had lived by the shore all my life, I seemed never to have been near the sea till then. The smell of tar and salt was something new. I saw the most wonderful figureheads that had all been far over the ocean. I saw, besides, many old sailors with rings in their ears and whiskers curled in ringlets and tarry pigtails and their swaggering clumsy sea-walk, and if I had seen as many kings or archbishops, I could not have been more delighted. And I was going to see myself to see in a schooner with a piping bosun and pigtailed singing seamen, to see bound for an unknown island and to seek for buried treasures. While I was still in this delightful dream, we came suddenly in front of a large inn and met Squire Trelawney, all dressed out like a sea officer in stout blue cloth, coming out of the door with a smile on his face and a capital imitation of a sailor's walk. Here you are, he cried, and the doctor came last night from London. Bravo, the ship's company's complete. Oh, sir, cried I, when do we sail? Sail, he says he, we sail tomorrow. And that, dear listener, wraps up a couple of chapters more of Robert Louis Stevenson's Treasure Island. I hope you're enjoying it as much as I am. I feel like the adventure is about to begin. Stay tuned to the next episode and find out more of what adventures Jim will experience. See you next time on Storytime with Mark. <laughs>